Welcome to the Cumberland River Compact's River Talks podcast. In each episode of River Talks, we explore a new topic related to the health, enjoyment, and protection of the Cumberland River Basin's water, people, and special places. We sit down with experts, artists, researchers, professionals, and more to share their knowledge and experiences. I'm Katherine Price, your River Talks host. Be sure to subscribe to River Talks to be notified of every new episode. And if you have a moment, please rate and review our podcast. Across Appalachia, thousands of acres of formerly mined land sits barren or has been converted to a gravelly grassland. These sites were once home to thriving forest ecosystems and some of our region's most astounding biodiversity. Through a specific reforestation process known as the forestry reclamation approach, these sites can be improved by removing invasive and non-native plants, loosening compacted soil, and finally planting a mix of native trees. After reforestation, these sites have higher biodiversity, help naturally clean and filter rainwater entering into nearby streams, and provide long-term economic benefits to the communities they surround. In this River Talk, Cumberland River Compact Executive Director Mikhail Houghton and Senior Program Manager of Watershed Planning Jed Grubbs joined Dr. Chris Barton with Green Forest Work to discuss this approach in the region. Chris Barton is the founder and president of Green Forest Work, a nonprofit restoration group, and also he is a professor of forest hydrology and watershed management at the University of Kentucky. Through these dual roles, Chris leads research efforts and on-the-ground action to restore mine lands throughout Appalachia. So Chris, I was wondering if you could start by telling us the first time you saw an abandoned mine land and you know what your impression was of the land. Well, probably can't tell you the first time I saw one because I grew up in Kentucky and spent a lot of time in the woods and hiking and whatnot. And I probably walked across, you know, some abandoned mine lands and didn't understand what it was. My real first exposure to them was when I started uh, graduate school. And actually my master's thesis research was in the Rock Creek watershed down in McCree County. I was doing a project to actually build a constructed wetland to treat acid mine drainage. And so I spent three years, you know, down in the Stearns district there, just, you know, upstream from Rock Creek. Got to see all sorts of interesting things I've never seen, like water running out of old mine portals that was red as anything you've ever seen, flowed into this little creek called Jones Branch, which was totally orange and red. And then Jones Branch flowed down into Rock Creek. And at the point where it flowed into Rock Creek, the creek went from being a a federally protected wild and scenic river to an impaired stream. (laughs) It was that bad. And, uh, And in and around that area, there were lots of old tipple piles and, you know, areas that they had surface mined and nothing would grow back. So it was a real eye-opener to be thrown into that situation and and learning about the chemistry of acid mine drainage and how to treat it. And it was fascinating, actually. I mean, it was such, you know, so devastating to the environment. 
I really got really interested in trying to figure out how to fix this problem. And that sort of led to, you know, 25 years of, of working, you know, in and around mine lands and in Appalachia and elsewhere. Green forests work has presented, I think, a really interesting approach to reclamation. And can you tell us sort of how you got to that point? It, it kind of relates back to what I was just talking about. My project that I had when I was working on my master's, it was very focused on these couple of little seeps. And so I built this wetland and all these different, you know, strategies to deal with, you know, trying to bring the pH of the water up and precipitate out metals and things like that. And so I was very focused on this one little stream, you know, in this bigger watershed that had all of these problems. And somewhere, you know, it was years later, probably 10, 12 years later, when I started looking at more recent mining activities and the scale of the landscape disturbance was much, much larger than those little mine portals that were, you know, probably mined in the 50s. And suddenly we're looking at, you know, these landscapes that are thousands of acres and all the water resources are kind of messed up in them or they're affecting the aquatic life. And it occurred to me somewhere along the line that instead of like going after that one little stream, we should be thinking about this at the watershed scale. And one of the things, you know, I was focused on the water, the water quality, but it, it occurred to me that maybe part of the bigger issue is the fact that a lot of these mine lands were in ecosystems that were forested prior to the mining. And almost all of them in Kentucky and West Virginia and Eastern Tennessee were being reclaimed as grassland. The grasslands affect, you know, the surface hydrology. And the reason they're grasslands is because the reclamation techniques overcompact the land and trees won't grow. And so it just sort of occurred to me, it's like, maybe we really need to have the forest back to restore those functions that the forest provides to control the hydrology of these systems. And maybe if we can get that right, we can subsequently, you know, have some sort of benefit on one, the amount of water in these watersheds, because, you know, flooding is a problem on these mine landscapes. And then the erosion and, you know, other types of water quality issues are sort of exasperated by all this extra water. So that really shifted my thought process from, you know, trying to treat, trying to do a chemical treatment to looking at sort of a biological approach to restoration and, and reforestation being the key to sort of reversing these negative impacts. And so do you think you were the first, Green Forest Works was the first to do this kind of reclamation with the forest rather than the grassland? No, we weren't actually. So there's great examples of forest restoration that were done in the 50s and the 60s in Western Kentucky and, and even some examples in Eastern Tennessee. And these were all before the Surface Mine Control and Reclamation Act. And back then they would just, you know, pile the spoil up in, in big piles. And I think it was kind of ugly. So a way to sort of uh, hide it was plant trees on them. Well, one of the things, you know, that we used to sort of figure out how to trees, get trees to grow on these sites, we went back to those sites from the 50s. 
where they weren't necessarily doing it purposely to, you know, reforest this for some sort of future benefit and looked at the conditions on those sites. And one of the things that we discovered very quickly was these sites were not compacted at all. It was just piles of rock and they just planted trees in it. So that gave us a clue when we started thinking about these sites that were reclaimed after the Surface Mining Control and Reclamation Act, which required the mining companies to restore the approximate original contour of the landscape. And so to do that, they really had to stabilize the site, which means, you know, take a big bulldozer and compact all of that rock down so that it's not going to slide. And, and that's good from a stability standpoint, but the soils were so compacted that the trees just wouldn't grow. And when mining companies after this law was enacted, you know, in the late 1970s, would try to plant trees, they would just die. There's no air exchange, the roots couldn't grow into it, water didn't infiltrate into it. It was really those trees that were planted in the 50s and 60s that gave us a clue of how we could fix the problem. And literally what we did was a bunch of experiments to figure out ways that we could get the stability that we needed to meet the requirements of the Surface Mine Control and Reclamation Act, but at the same time, decrease the compaction. And so really what we came up with was, you know, some research projects where we looked at things that would be akin to like a raised bed in your garden, you know, get it the way it needs to be for stability. And then the last couple of meters of material, just dump it on there and plant trees in it. And the trees responded fabulously to that. And then the other thing we looked at, which was sort of where green forest work came in was, okay, we figured out how to grow the trees on these sites, but <laughs> there's about a million acres out there that had been reclaimed as these compacted grasslands. And so we looked at techniques for loosening up those soils to get them to where they would support forest vegetation. And it turns out that a really large bulldozer with a really large ripping shank <laughs> does a great job of just going in and plowing these sites up and loosening that compaction. And it allows us to plant in it. It allows the tree to grow. And we've seen a complete reversal on the dynamics of how water actually moves in that system. It infiltrates instead of runs off. And so that provides water in the soil that the trees can utilize for their growth. There was some, you know, research that went into it by, you know, my group, as well as, you know, several other universities in the region, but we kind of collectively figured it out, you know, and we now know, and we're now kind of joined forces, if you will, to promote these activities. And it's, it's been a real, I think, success story for the region. Chris, what are some of the ecological benefits you're seeing after successful projects are completed? Well, I mean, there's many, you know, we can talk about lots of environmental benefits, you know, with regards to, oh, climate change mitigation, cleaning of the air, but we can also look at basically just habitat restoration. The problem with these really large surface mines are that they're fragmenting, you know, the Appalachian forest and the forest of the Cumberland Plateau. And these were, you know, historically large, intact expanses of forest that suddenly now have all of these islands of grasslands and barren lands within them. So 
one of the things that we've been doing is trying to reduce that forest fragmentation and trying to focus some of our project areas, you know, on key, you know, habitat corridors for species where we can reduce that fragmentation. That seems to be a really good thing for certain migratory bird species and mammals and you name it. You know, we're also seeing the benefits of the water quality improvements. We're seeing less surface runoff, so we're reducing storm surges on these lands. So reduced flooding, and that actually helps the stream systems below these sites. They become less erosive, and it's not as impacting to some of the salamanders and fish and things like that that utilize those. We've been showing that it reduces the amount of erosion. And again, sediment in these streams is a, a big deterrent to the aquatic life that live within them. So You know, there's a variety of ecological benefits, but there's also a lot of other (laughs) benefits when we think about the economics of it and, you know, and especially in a region of the United States that is economically distressed and the coal industry is definitely on decline. And so people are starting to think about what are things that we can do in these areas to create jobs now and also provide opportunities for the future. So I think our work sort of ties within that too. In what ways are restored sites different from what existed prior to mining? And in what ways are they returning to their previous conditions? I mean, clearly the restored sites aren't going to have the biodiversity of the pre-mining sites. The, the central Appalachian area has some of the highest you know, biodiversity in the temperate regions of the world. So, you know, when you take something that has, you know, hundreds of tree species, for example, and you blast it all away and you plant it back with a couple of species, like, you know, they were doing a couple of grass species. When they do that, it creates a a situation that we call arrested succession. If I went out to my family farm here in Kentucky and we stopped farming it, you know, within a few years, it would start to revert back to forest on its own. And it would have a bunch of species come in and just take over and follow some sort of natural, you know, succession process. On these mine lands, because of all the limitations, the soil is buried, the seed bank is buried, it's compacted. They just don't naturally come back on their own. The succession or the colonization processes are arrested. And you know, we think it would take decades, if not centuries, for these things to sort of come back on their own. So one of the things that we do when we go in and rip up the land, for one thing, we're allowing, if there is any seed in the seed bank, to basically provide the conditions for it to germinate or allow for wind-dispersed or animal-dispersed seed to come in and actually germinate. So I just had a student, it's interesting you ask, she went to a mine site in West Virginia and recorded the number of species, these were herbaceous species, before we started our restoration project on a site. And there was like 28 different species, about half of them were non-native exotic species. And then we went and we ripped up the site so that we could plant uh, our trees. And just that act of ripping up the site, we went from 28 species to 108 species. 
and 68 of those that came in, new species, were native to the area. Wow. So just that process alone of breaking up that compaction, we basically moved the site into a more normal succession pattern so that it can, seeds and things can come in and actually germinate, colonize. Well, then we go and we plant 20 or 30 different woody species, and we tend to shoot for, you know, like those heavy seeded species that are going to take a long time to find their way to the middle of a, of a mine land. And, um, and we also think about, you know, early successional, later successional species and species that are going to be good for wildlife. So we're adding diversity there as well. And then the light seeded woody species, you know, like your fire cherry and your maples and things like that can kind of come in on their own. So what we're hoping to do is not only add some diversity to this system, but we're creating conditions for them to sort of naturally recover on their own. Now, it'll take a while for that to happen, but we've seen that it's, it's actually been pretty rapid. You know, we're not going to get back all of the animal and vegetation species overnight. But one of the cool things that, you know, I have this nonprofit, but also I'm still a, a university researcher at the University of Kentucky. We have been going in and sort of following like soil development on these sites. And one of the things that we've seen is as the forest grows and the canopy starts to close, you know, around age 10, 12, something like that, we start to see processes in the soil recover at a much faster rate than anybody <laughs> anticipated. So we see things like decomposition of litter and development of our, you know, sort of a horizon in our soil all of that's happening within, you know, like the first 10 years. And we've compared the development of these soils to like regenerating forests that have been harvested for wood or whatever of about the same age. And within about 10 years, we start to see a lot of those functional processes in the soils return. We also have even looked at, you know, crazy things like plant pathogens. We also are working with trying to bring back the American chestnut to the Appalachian region. And so it turns out that the American Chestnut Foundation has a pretty good blight resistant chestnut uh, tree. And we plant it in our forest and it dies, not from the chestnut blight, but from another plant pathogen called Phytophthora cinnamomi. And so that's in our forest soils. And I was like, well, they're not going to be in these mine soils because the soil's buried, all the mycorrhizae's buried, everything. But, and we're really planting in rocks. So maybe we should plant these chestnuts in a phytophthora-free environment, which would be these mine lands. And these mine lands are right in the heart of the you know, historical range of the American chestnut. So this was a great idea. And we did it. And the chestnuts have been growing and doing well. But we've been sort of tracking whether or not the Phytophthora comes back. And just like all these other soil processes, initially it's not there. But after about 10 years or so, suddenly it shows up. That could be a bad thing. It's a plant pathogen, but it's part of our natural forest environment or the biology of our natural forest soil. So the fact that it's coming back means that it's another process that's recovering from these activities. Like I said, some of it is coming back faster. Some of it is going to take some time, you know, getting the full, you know, diversity of the plant life back. But I think we're definitely speeding things up. 
thanks to the supporters of the Cumberland River Compact who help bring our podcast to listeners. We would also like to thank Pinnacle Financial for their support of the Cumberland River Compact's work to enhance the health and enjoyment of the Cumberland River in Tennessee and Kentucky. So Chris, you talked a a bit about the economy of the coal mines and job loss in the region. Can you talk a little bit about the the interaction you see between this forest reclamation and a green jobs economy or economic benefits to these regions? You know, after we sort of figured out how to get trees (laughs) to grow on these sites, Uh, It was actually President Obama, his first address to the nation. He talked a lot about green jobs and green energy and a green economy and a green this, green that. And, you know, we had had this sort of idea in the back of our mind to bring back the Civilian Conservation Corps, if you will, to help restore, you know, these lands that have been affected by coal mining. And so that really, you know, became sort of what drove us to create this nonprofit organization. You know, we wrote a big proposal, sent it to Obama's office. I think it's still there. Um, (laughs) But anyway, we just started doing it. And, you know, the first year we had volunteers come out, mining company loaned us a bulldozer and, and we did a little, you know, 20 acre project. And one of the cool things about that project was we had like environmental activists, (laughs) planting trees next to a coal miner, you know, and so everybody was there, you know, for the purpose of trying to do something active. And and in this time, there was a time when there was a lot of protests going on about mountaintop mining and things of that nature. So it was something sort of positive that we got people out and they got their hands dirty and they actively participated in, you know, an environmental improvement project basically everybody was like, we want to come back and do this, you know, next year or next week or whatever. And it's like, huh, we might be onto something. And so we just started doing this on our own without any funding, but we were still sort of pitching this as this potentially could be an economic program for the region. And, and I was given a a presentation at, I think it was a green jobs conference in DC and uh, some folks from the UN and some folks from the Appalachian regional commission were there and they heard what I had to say, and it was, oh, it, was a, it was a program on Appalachia in transition. And everybody there gave this, like, terrible story. Oh, it's gloom and doom. You know, there's no jobs. Everybody's got to move out. And, and I was the last speaker, and I got up and said something good. It was like, hey, we could go out and, you know, restore these habitats and create jobs. And uh, so the folks from the UN and ARC came to me afterwards, and they were like, we love that idea. And uh, how can we help? And so they provided some funding to start the nonprofit organization. And, and really the idea was, you know, we need to go out. Of, originally, we thought about hiring this army of people. But it turned out that once we started implementing these projects, we were hiring local contractors to do bulldozer work. We were buying plants from local nurseries. We were getting local folks to plant the trees. We had people coming out and collecting seed and propagating that. and so we were putting money back into these local economies, not the way that we had originally envisioned. But as we grew over time, you know, we went from thousands of dollars to millions of dollars a year 
putting back into these sites um, or into these areas. So in effect, we are actually helping out. And we do have some folks who work for us periodically that were, you know, sort of displaced coal miners doing bulldozer work for us and things like that. So, you know, we, we now have sort of a model of how we can do this. And, and this is, we're just talking about reforestation. And there's a lot of programs that are going on right now with the AML pilot projects and the Reclaim Act and different things where people are starting to think about what we can do in these areas that have been impacted by the loss of coal mining jobs to create new jobs. And so there's all sorts of crazy things that have been come up, but I keep saying, okay, here's one that we can do right now. And not only are we talking about planting the trees, but, you know, restoring streams. There are thousands and thousands of miles of impacted streams in Appalachia and all of that habitat. I mean, stream restoration in America is a billion dollar a year industry. And um, there's lots of engineers out there who worked on coal mines who probably have the skills to do this type of work. There's lots of equipment operators out there. And it's, it'll, it'll be a big effort to fix up all of these lands that have impa been impacted by mining. So that's sort of, you know, where we are. We have a lot of other groups that have come up and are trying to replicate what we're doing, which is great because there's lots of work to be done. But, you know, I really do think that by contracting local people out, we are, in effect, putting money back into these local economies and, and helping improve, you know, the living conditions of, where they, you know, where they live. It's, you know, sort of a win-win sort of situation, if you will. We're huge fans of your work. I, I think it's so exciting, the work that you all are doing. I wonder if you see the potential in these areas for ecotourism to grow as an industry. I do. And, you know, there's been a lot of money <laughs> Um, from some of those acts I was talking about, you know, to build these sort of like elk wildlife viewing areas and things like that. And that has its place. But I really do think that there's a lot of opportunity for hiking and mountain biking. We do a lot of work on the Monongahela National Forest. There's about, oh, 25,000 acres of old mine lands within the proclamation area of that forest. And We've been focusing on this one area called the Mauer Tract that has about 1,700 acres of mine land. And it's literally over the mountain from the Snowshoe Ski Resort. So one of the things we've been doing is going into these, you know, old grassland sites and bringing back, you know, high elevation red spruce habitat. But because it's on Forest Service land, we've been building trails. And each time I go down there <laughs> to visit our site, you know, we have another project that we're doing this year, another 200 acres, but I see people utilizing those trails for mountain biking. And, you know, they're really nice. And unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, because, you know, we're starting over and we're ripping up the land and everything. There's these beautiful vistas because there's no forest there right now. The trees are, you know, a few feet tall and growing. So it becomes a really, you know, interesting place to utilize. And, we started another project near Charleston, West Virginia, where I talked about that with the landowners and they were really excited. So now we're building mountain bike trails there. These sites are great initially if you're into, and this is, you know, this is a big thing. If you're into bird watching, I mean, 
these early successional habitats are just havens for a whole suite of bird species. And people who are into that spend a lot of money traveling to places to check off, you know, the bird of interest. And um, these sites are really providing, you know, a nice place for that. I know a lot of people like to hunt on them. So, yeah. And, you know, especially on the lands that we've been working with the Forest Service, you know, we're putting in trails, but we're also putting in campsites and things of that nature. And right now during, you know, the time of COVID, everybody's looking for a campsite, I think. So I think every time, you know, I go to the Monongahela, um, all the little sites that we've created have people using them. So that's good. Yeah, I think definitely there's a place for, you know, all sorts of opportunities with tourism going forward. And so would you say that we are still optimistic um, for the region, uh, you know, for the next 50 years? Do you retain that optimism you talked about having? I think so, yeah. I think there's going to be some creative and different things that may or may not happen on these lands. But ultimately, we're creating opportunities now with jobs and things like ecotourism. But ultimately, in the future, when these forests grow back, I mean, the forest industry in Kentucky is a $10 billion a year industry. And so you might have forest products or non-wood forest products that people can use these sites for. I think it'll probably still be an extractive economy in the future, but it's, you know, something. And that's part of the culture of that area is this long (laughs) they were logging trees before they were mining coal so you know some of that is still going to be around but that's another opportunity for people that live in the region as well your reforestation projects involve professionals and volunteers planting trees together why do you think it's valuable to include volunteers in these large-scale tree plantings so the job i get paid for (laughs) college professor there's an educational component to these volunteer events that we really like. And early on, you know, it was just getting people out on the site and talking about the problems and talking about solutions and letting them be part of that solution that turned out to be extremely rewarding. And so a lot of our volunteers are actually college students who come to Appalachia on spring break and, you know, instead of going to Daytona Beach and going crazy, <laughs> they come and volunteer and plant trees and, you know, have sort of an experiential learning event over that break. We've had probably over 80 different colleges and universities come and plant trees on these sites. And a lot of them come back year after year. It's like, oh, we got to break, you know, and they built this into their curriculum. And um, that part of it is really good, that sort of educational piece. From an environmental justice standpoint, I really think that we're provided an opportunity to empower people to actually do something positive in sort of a negative situation. And lots of times you don't get that opportunity for activism or whatever, but Going out and actually doing something to improve the situation with your own hands, I think it's very powerful. So, And we get the feedback from folks that they really like that. And, you know, not only people who are against mountaintop mining, for instance, but we get a lot of, you know, faith-based groups who are worried about the care of creation and how we're treating Mother Earth, if you will. And so... We get a lot of folks from those types of groups who want to come back 
they talk about God's garden and, uh, you know, and, and restoring that. And so it's neat, the fact that we can appeal to a lot of different audiences and provide an opportunity for individuals to come out and, you know, faith-based. We even have like industry who are using us to help them meet corporate sustainability goals. They want to reduce their carbon footprint. Well, how can they do that? Well, a lot of these companies, I'm sure you've seen this company and that company has a million tree campaign. Well, we were like, okay, yeah, we'll help you plant your million trees, but why don't you bring your employees out and let them participate in that and let them be part of the solution, not just handing money over to people. So we have several, you know, large industries um, who are doing that, you know, groups like the bourbon industry who use white oak bourbon barrels. <laughs> Somebody a while back started thinking, hmm, as the consumption of bourbon has just gone skyrocketed, it's like, are we going to have enough white oak trees <laughs> to sustain this? So, okay. you know, maybe not. So, you know, one of the things we're doing in the Cumberland Plateau is we're planting a lot of white oak trees. You know, so there's ties like that that are really neat and make those volunteer planting events. You know, probably 85% of our trees are planted by paid, you know, professionals, but it's those probably the 15% that have the most impact and they help spread the word. And a lot of these people, you know, provide contributions and things like that for the planting. So anyway, it's something when we first started it, it was like, this is great. And then as it grew, it's like, what have we gotten ourselves into when we have, you know, thousands of people and every day we have a tree planting event for like a month and a half. But in the end, it's, you know, I think it's one of the more rewarding things that, you know, we do. Well, we immediately had that reaction when we learned about the work that you're doing as well and, and we're immediately drawn to y'all. Why work in Appalachia, Chris? What draws you personally to the region? Personally, for me, it's just where I grew up in this area. When I was in high school, on the weekends, we'd run down to the Smoky Mountains and get on the Appalachian Trail. And so I just spent a lot of time in these woods and, and I love them. And, you know, I love the water resources associated with them. And so it's just one of those things that it's like, it's my backyard, if you will. And, you know, and you hate to see an area that can be so beautiful and then suddenly right in the middle of it is something that's just horrendous. And it really makes you kind of feel like, is there something I can do? And that was one of the things that got me interested. You know, when I was working down at Rock Creek, like I mentioned earlier, you know, it was just seeing that red water. And I was like, oh, what in the world? This isn't right. What can we do about it? And, you know, and finding solutions. And, you know, and I'm that way with a lot of my grad students. It's like, okay, you know, let's figure this out. But yeah, I'm definitely drawn to the region. But one of the things that, you know, has happened recently, as, you know, we have developed this regional reforestation initiative, we're starting to think about, is it applicable to other mining regions of the world? And there's a lot of folks that are interested in, especially when we start thinking about climate mitigation and there's a lot of strategies and schemes out there for planting a trillion trees on the globe to help stabilize CO2 concentrations. And where are we going to plant a trillion trees? Well, you're not going to plant them in the farmlands because we need food. Um, you're not going to plant them in cities, you know, and you're not going to plant them in deserts. And so what does that leave? It leaves, you know, disturbed areas and 
and I guess marginal agriculture areas, you know, that don't yield a lot. Globally, there's millions and millions of acres of these mine lands. And so we just basically, within the last couple of years, have started an initiative in um, the eastern part of Australia, where they do a lot of coal mining, to look at sort of the transferability of, of our approach. The trees are going to be different, the t- climate is different, but the soil science and the ecology are going to be the same. And, and there, you know, it's similar to what we're doing here. We're trying to protect water resources by putting these forests back. And one of the big problems in Australia right now is these huge mines are producing a lot of sediment. They're actually getting out into the ocean and affecting the Great Barrier Reef, which is, you know, a jewel for tourism and ecology of Australia. And between, you know, the effects of climate change and the bleaching on the coral, with the addition of all this sediment and nutrients and stuff like that coming from the land, the people there are really like interested in what we're doing. It's like, let's try it because they're the same as we are. They're taking areas that, you know, they call bush, um, but, you know, a forested woodland area and they're converting it all to what they call improved pasture. So we've set up a couple of experimental plots there and the trees are doing well and we have a lot of interest um, um, going back, hopefully going back next year, we're going to plant, you know, something like half a million trees, both now for the Great Barrier Reef, but also to do some fire rehabilitation work for the koala uh, population that really got decimated in their wildfires last year. What are the best ways people in Middle Tennessee can help protect or promote water quality in Appalachia? The water rolling out of those hills and the Upper Cumberland, it's the same water rolling through Nashville, Clarksville, other communities. What can we be doing? One of the things that has proven to really work over and over are really to sort of protect riparian areas and protect as much vegetation as you can. Things like riparian restoration is really good, you know, in that area for protecting water resources. We found, you know, in some other research I did, I don't want to get into it, but these buffers that we leave around streams are really important. If they're, you know, wide enough, they can mitigate so much of, you know, the water degradation issues that we have from upland things like farming and logging and mining and whatever. So I think it's really important to keep as much vegetation around as you can, protect riparian areas, restore riparian areas. That will go a long ways to even, you know, streams that are degraded. We know that if we have a good vegetation management around them, you know, what happens? Well, limbs fall off of trees and they create little debris dams and sediment starts accumulating behind them. And you know, we can even take highly incised streams and sort of naturally repair them. So minimizing damage to your vegetation community is the best thing you can do. And if you have degraded it, then try to put it back. Um, I'm a firm believer now that, you know, you got to think about this from a watershed standpoint. And even in, you know, an urban environment like Nashville, I was talking to my students in my watershed class yesterday and I showed them a video that I took in my backyard where it was raining and I have this giant sugar maple tree in my backyard and underneath the tree there was no rain at all. It was dry and then I panned over to the street where there were no trees and it was like surface runoff and just you know overloading the system. So 
even in an urban environment, you know, the planting of trees can really do a lot to intercept precipitation and that either keeps it out of the stormwater systems or um, slows it down and shades your house. So yeah, planting trees, I guess, you know, that's what I, my solution to everything. <laughs> Great solution. It solves a lot of problems. Are there things that we should be doing for upstream communities? You know, we all live in the watershed and we all should be, you know, concerned about what's happening upstream from us and what's happening downstream from us. So, yeah, a concerted effort to determine what are the water quality issues or watershed issues in your watershed and develop solutions as a community is extremely important. Let's table green forest work for a moment. What is something you personally recommend? This could be a book, podcast, food, movie, craft, hobby, anything. Is, is there something you've been spending time with on your own that's been especially rewarding these days? I've actually been, during this time, it's kind of a, a weird thing. I have a family farm and I have been, I don't plant enough trees. I plant millions of trees for my job, but I started <laughs> growing hazelnuts and oaks that are inoculated with truffles. <laughs> and um, so I'm experimenting. Um, and you can do this in Nashville. One of the things you have to have for growing truffles is alkaline soil. And with that limestone dome you have there, you might have good conditions for it. And so I've been playing, me and my dog have been playing around with growing truffles in the time of coronavirus. And, uh, and it's been a great distraction. Yeah, so that's something different. Um, but, you know, getting outside, and that's the other thing that's great about, you know, what we've been talking about is all of this activity takes place outside. It's good to be out there and away from Zoom <laughs> and enjoying nature. Um, uh, that's my recommendation for everyone right now. And I think that's really been huge. Um, I've never seen so many canoes and kayaks on tops of people's cars as I have over this summer. People are taking up fishing. And I, mean, I think this is a great time to go out and explore your outdoors because that is something safe that you know we can do and we can do it at a social distance so go to the big south fork and take a hike <laughs> <laughs> roger that um chris thank you so much for taking the time it's been great speaking with you all right no problem thank you to dr chris barton for joining us for river talks the Appalachian Mountains are home to the Cumberland River's headwaters, as well as fascinating history, rich culture, and biodiversity. We believe that healthy aquatic ecosystems and sustainable economic growth should go hand in hand, and we're grateful to groups like Green Forest Works who share our aim to bring clean water and green jobs to areas impacted by abandoned mines. Want to add your thoughts about this week's episode? Send us an email at rivertalks at cumberlandrivercompact.org or leave us a voice message at 615-933-8837. Until next time, I'm Katherine Price and hope you can join us for more River Talks.